Our little finish the phrase exercise worked so good last week. Uh, I want to try it again this week. So you finish uh, the phrase that I begin. It goes like this. Uh, I before E. Oh, good. Good to give yourselves a hand. Good job. That was nice. Some of you, anyway, uh, knew it, and, and that's good. Um, but I, I, I want to know, you can amaze your friends and colleagues and coworkers with this tomorrow. Did you know that there's more to that phrase? Well, there is, and I'm going to tell you what it is. Right now, I before E except after C, or when sounded as A, the letter A, as in neighbor and way, and weird is just weird. That's actually the, look it up, Google it, that's actually the official rest of that, uh, rest of that saying. And I, I put it up there so that we're always on the same page when I say language is difficult. If you remember studying English as a kid, or if you're like my wife who uh, used to work for that VIP kid place and teach English to uh, primarily Chinese, little Chinese kids, language is difficult. And when it comes to the Bible and talking about the Bible and the words of the Bible that we read there, we have to remember that it was written thousands of years ago in three different languages. And though the the people who transcribed the Bible over the years did the best that they could, they sometimes struggled to get the exact meaning of words across. For instance, the New Testament was written partly in Aramaic and primarily in Greek. But the version of Greek that it was written in is called Koine. And so for a lot of years, scholars and scientists who didn't believe in God and didn't believe the Bible was accurate or truth, they said that the Greek that was found in the Bible, the New Testament, was not really Greek. And so it was made up and it wasn't real and it couldn't be trusted. Well, as they, uh, uh, archeology, span they uh, excavate things and they discover things, they found that this Greek that the New Testament was written in really is a language in and of itself. Again, it's called Koine Greek. And the best way that I can help you understand it is to just um, say this, uh, it's, uh, Koine Greek is kind of like Arkansas English. Okay, it, it, it's the, it's the uh, at the risk of offending you, Arkansas folks, it, it is the, it's the poor man's Greek, okay? So Greek speakers didn't typically speak this kind of, uh, of Greek. And so uh, there was difficulty in translating some of those words. And the, and the trouble we have with translating Greek is that while there are uh, multiple words in Greek for love, there's um, eros, there's phileo, there's agape, there's storge, um, and, and there's actually some more. Um, those, are, those are the most widely used ones. Those, all of those different Greek words get translated in English as one word, love. So um, we, uh, it leaves us kind of scratching our, our heads sometimes because um, we can go back to the original language 
And, and we can read things in, in Greek like, like this. Um, Jesus meets with Peter after his resurrection. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. They're talking. And Jesus goes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you agapao me? And, and agapao is the Greek word. That's one of the Greek words that's translated love. And it means um, unconditional love. Do you, do you love me? more than anybody, more than anything in a complete and total way. And Peter's response to Jesus is, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. And phileo is is the Greek word for brotherly love or kind of best friend love. If you have somebody in your life, you have that connection, you'll do anything for them, they'll do anything for you, but you're not really family, you're not, you're not in a relationship, you're, you're just friends, you're just best friends. That's the phileo kind of love. And so two times, Jesus goes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter two times says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Uh, clearly, um, Peter, Peter and uh, Jesus are acting like husbands and wives here who are kind of saying the same thing, but not on the same page, right? And so the last time that Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then they kind of um, moved on from that. And so you can see that there are challenges when it comes to language, when we don't fully understand what we're reading or the language that we're reading, or when we don't have equal words or terms for the language that we're translating into English. Now, it gets even more complicated than that because uh, the New Testament was written in Aramaic and, and Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And Hebrew is the native tongue language of the Jewish people. And so it's where we find the Shema in the Old Testament in Hebrew and uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 uh, were written in Hebrew. Uh, and when we try to understand words in the Old Testament written in Hebrew, we often have to look at the context that the word is in in, under, in, able to, in order to understand its full meaning. And so um, that's what we did last week. If you were here last week, we kicked off this Shema series. We looked at the word Shema translated in uh, English in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 as here. And we learned that that word Shema in different places in the Old Testament can be used to mean hear or pay attention or respond. But every time that God uses the word Shema and he's speaking that to other people and he's using it as kind of command, he always means listen and obey. You got to do both of these things. You got to hear and heed. You've got to understand and then undertake what it is that I'm saying. So today, we're going to look at two more key words in the Shema, the words love and heart. But before we get into those words, let's remind ourselves what the Shema is. The Shema is called the Shema simply because Shema is the first word in the prayer that Moses gave the people. The Shema is a prayer of uh, allegiance that the Jews would recite every morning and every evening. It was part of this ritual and rhythm of their life that they would uh, get into. It was kind of like the northern light 
which is really weird to say that because I am facing south and it just messes with my head. Um, it's kind of like the northern light and uh, it guided the people in their everyday lives. And so they get up in the morning and they would pray this prayer. Um, listen and obey, Israel. God is God alone. And so love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And it was a way for them to enter into the day remembering that God is God alone, that he expects us to not just hear, but to heed the things that he says. And then in response to that, we're to love God with everything that we have. And so it helped the Jewish people keep focused on God. And so we're gonna take a look at that together and, and let's just read it together right off the screen, okay? Hear, O Israel, I, I didn't hear you, I'm loud, so let's start again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Part of the struggle with the word love in English is that we use it for absolutely everything, right? We, we say, I love my wife, I love pizza, Easton clearly loves football. Uh, I love my kids, we say. I, I love fishing. I love Fords, right, Martin? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> because we use the word love for everything, for so many things, the word love has become uh, common. It's, it's, it's overused, and, and really, it's confusing. What does it mean to say, I love you? And, and let me just, I, I know this might step on some toes and, and make you feel uncomfortable, but let me just say this. Husbands and wives, if you have children, you are saying, your, your kids hear you say, I love you to your spouse. And then, and then they also hear a couple things. They also hear you getting angry and calling this spouse that you love names. And they go, well, I hear that's happening outside to other people, but you guys are supposed to love each other. Um, or we're saying, I love you to our spouse, and then we're doing things that aren't showing love, or, or we're doing things that are actively showing that we don't love them. Uh, and, and we get to this point sometimes where we go, I have to sit down with the kids and we go, look, mom and dad, just, we just don't love each other anymore. That's not what we think love is, right? L love is supposed to be love. And so for every child, they're like, well, if you can, can say for 10 years that you love mom or you love dad, and all of a sudden you don't love anymore, when are you going to stop loving me? That's the struggle we have with love. What does love even mean if we can use it and then abuse it in the way that we do. So when we read that we should love God, we don't really understand what that means in the culture today. Are we to love God like we love our spouse? That's just weird, okay? That's not the kind of love I think um, they're talking about. Are, are we to love God like we love a child? No, 
clearly we're the children in our relationship uh, with, with God. What about loving God like we love fishing or, or Fords? Uh, we just don't have a really clear way to define love in our culture today. And so before we can love God with all of our heart and soul and strength, we have to know what kind of love we're talking about. Is it, is it spouse love? Is it parent love? Is it, is it fishing love? So we're gonna make sure today that we understand what kind of love we're supposed to have for God before we move on to the rest, how we, how we love God with our heart, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. So the Hebrew word, um, I don't know where I'm at. Okay, uh, the Hebrew word uh, in the Shema prayer for love is ahava. And uh, that, that, I don't know if that's the correct phonetic spelling, but I figured you all would get it. Ah, ah, va. Uh, now, you, now you know Hebrew. And again, impress your friends uh, tomorrow at, at school. Uh, Ahava represents the affection or the care that one person has for another. And, and because of that, Ahava in the Old Testament is fairly broad. Like it's used for a bunch of different things kind of like love in our language today, although I think it's a little bit narrower than that because they wouldn't use ahava for inanimate things. It was primarily used between people in relationship. And so um, this word ahava in, in Hebrew, it's uh, the word used to describe the love that Abraham has for his son Isaac. In another place in the Old Testament, it's used to describe the love that Jonathan had for his best friend, David. And, and so you can read about the Old Testament, uh, David and Jonathan, a very close uh, best friend kind of relationship. They were like, um, I, I don't know what would be the same today, but like, like blood brothers. Like they had gone through it together and, and they, they, were just, they had each other's back. Um, another place it's used is when it talks about uh, David has become king and all of Israel had ahava for David. They have this love and respect for David. It was used to describe or to frame the good relationship that the king of Tyre, which was a non-Jewish nation, had for uh, King David. And so the king of Tyre had ahava for David. And because of that love for David, he uh, helped David's son Solomon build the temple to God in Jerusalem. But like the word Shema that we looked at last week, we can learn more about it when we look at how God uses it. Uh, when he speaks. And so when uh, God uses it to define love for Israel. And so we're gonna look at that first in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. Uh, Moses is speaking here, and we looked in the last series. Deuteronomy is Moses recounting uh, the covenant relationship that God had with Israel right before Israel, after their 40 years of wandering in the desert, right before they crossed the Jordan River and begin to take possession of the promised land. And so this is part of uh, Moses' speech before the people do that. And so Moses says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and, and chose you. Basically, he's saying, 
you're, you're not the best people, okay? You're not the mightiest nation. You're not the biggest. You're not the wealthiest. In fact, there's no real national redeeming quality that you have here. It, it, this, is, um, this is offensive, the first part of this um, statement. Um, the, so it's not because you're great that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but he said it's because the Lord loves you. And that word love is ahava. It's because the Lord has ahava for you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Again, Moses is saying, look, God's love for you has nothing to do with you. It's not that you're great. It's not that you're wonderful. It really doesn't have anything to do with you at all. In fact, God's ahava for you really has to do with the relationship that he had with your fathers and what he swore to your fathers, that he would bring you out with a mighty hand and redeem you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so God doesn't love Israel because they deserved it. He doesn't love or have ahava for Israel because they had earned it somehow. God loved them because he loved them. And that's really all there is to it. It is, it's part of who he is. God says, I've chosen to show my love for you because I have chosen to show my love for you. It's like, it's who he is. Love comes out of him. It, it, he made an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Israel's ancestors, and he doesn't go back on his word. That's part of his love. It's part of how he shows love is by keeping his promises. And so while the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah was able to encourage them and remind them that God loved Israel in the midst of their struggle and that they would feel his love again. And so he says God has ahava toward Israel and that ahava is everlasting in, in Jeremiah 31, uh, three, Jeremiah says, Hey, things might be tough right now, but God's love for you is everlasting. So God's love is compared, um, in the old Testament to the love that a parent has for a child. It's compared to the love that a husband has for his wife. And, and the reason for that, I think is because those relationships are some of the strongest emotions that you and I can relate to. When it talks about God loving people and, and we tie that into the love that a parent has for a child or a spouse has for the other spouse, those are strong emotions. And so we connect immediately with like, okay, the love God has is this powerful, strong, overwhelming love. But God's love is not just this feeling this strong emotion, this powerful kind of force. When God says that he loves, his love is observable. And so constantly in Deuteronomy and throughout scripture, the writers are pointing people back to times before and going, look, we understand God's love because he acted in this way. He loved you. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, God loves you and he proved that he loved you by rescuing you from the hand of slavery. It's an action that God chooses to take on your behalf, even though you haven't earned it uh, and you did nothing to gain it. It's why the group DC Talk, if you remember old school Christian uh, rap group, DC Talk said that love was a verb. 
And Moses even talks about this kind of love in Deuteronomy 4, 37. He, he talks about actually the same kind of thing that we just read a moment ago. Because God loved your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and chose their offspring after them, he brought you out of Egypt, and he did that with his own presence and by his great power. So Moses says, look, because of God's ahava for Israel's ancestors, he brought you, the recipients of God's love, out of Egypt. He rescued you out of Egypt. And he did that with his own presence. And we get to remember back to the story. How did God bring them out of Egypt? With a pillar of cloud and fire. His presence was with them all the time. And when they get to Mount Sinai, his presence come down on the mountain. And then he gives Moses the instruction for building the tabernacle and the, and the Ark of the Covenant, which was like the hot spot of God's presence among the people. And so Moses says, God's love for you is seen in his own presence with you. You can see it, it was visible and by his great power. Well, how was the power of God displayed to the people? Well, the 10 plagues that were unleashed on Egypt because of their uh, disobedience, because they refused to soften their hearts and respond to God, these plagues came. And then when Israel got to leave Egypt, God parted the waters of the Red Sea. He turned the bitter waters of Marabah to, to sweet so they could drink it. He, he stopped and defeated Israel's foes. Over and over and over again, God showed his love for the people in observable ways. Now, Israel's only contribution to this relationship between God and them, this Ahava relationship that they had, their only contribution to that was that they cried out to God, a God that they really didn't know in prayer when they were slaves in Egypt. That's the only thing that Israel did in this whole process where God rescues them from slavery and then places them in this promised land where uh, Moses reminds the people, look, you are going to harvest grapes from vines that you did not plant or tend. You are going to live in houses with furniture and, and food in the fridge, except they didn't have fridges, uh, that you didn't build and you didn't earn. God is giving this to you because of who he is. And all they did was go, God, we're in a terrible situation. Please help us. And so when Moses gets to chapter six of Deuteronomy and he says, Shema, hear, O Israel, God is God alone, and you shall ahava the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength, uh, with all your soul and with all your might, the people of Israel understood that they were supposed to love God in the same way that God had loved them. And that love was observable. And so they understood that if they were going to love, if they were going to have ahava for God the way he loved them, they had to show that love. They couldn't just say, uh, I love you, God. They couldn't just show up at the temple and go, God, uh, hey, I just wanted you to know, uh, click my time card. I love you. I'll see you next Sunday. That's not how it worked. 
They were like, okay, if we're gonna love God the way he loves us, it has to be observable. We have to do it in ways that make sense, that it's action, it's a verb. We've gotta show him our love. It's like in 1 John when it says this, we love because God first loved us. We know what love is because as Easton pointed out a minute ago, God gave his only son for us. He willingly did that so that we might be saved. And so when Moses tells Israel to have ahava for God with all of their heart and soul and might, he's telling them to love God in the same way that God loved them. To choose God over all other gods and then to demonstrate their love through tangible action. Isn't it interesting that the word Shema means to hear and to obey? It's a two-part word, to hear and to, to heed. You've got to do both parts of that if you're going to actually Shema something. And here as we talk about love, again, two parts that we've got to understand that God is God above all things, that we got to love verbally, and then we've got to show that love. There's a verbal side, there's an action side to it. And so the Israelites understood that they were to choose God over all other gods of their day and then demonstrate that love for him in tangible action. And just like uh, for Israel, for us today, that tangible action, that way we show love is often called obedience. When we hear and we heed the words of God, when we love God and love others, when we daily surrender to Jesus' reign, we're being obedient to God. We're demonstrating that we ahava God in the same way that he loves us. And so just like we have sometimes very different ideas about what love is, over the centuries there have been some pretty odd ideas about the heart and what the heart is and what the heart does. Uh, for instance, ancient Israel believed that all intellectual activity took place in the heart. Uh, that's kind of silly to us today, right? You go, no, that's, that's not the way that goes. Um, but you have to remember that uh, ancient Israel, ancient peoples, they, they didn't have sonogram machines. They didn't have EKGs. Um, they, they didn't have heart monitors. They weren't able to look at the brain. They didn't have any real understanding of anatomy in, in, that, in that way. Um, and, and so uh, when it came to internal organs, they just didn't understand. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Ancient Israel didn't have a word for brain. <laughs> Does that seem weird? They, they, didn't, they didn't talk about it. It wasn't a thing. There was no word that meant brain that they could talk with each other uh, about. And so that's odd. Um, now they had seen brains. It was a barbaric time that they lived in. So I know that they had seen brain matter spill out, but they didn't have a word for it. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what it did. It was just this pink goo inside the body. That was uh, all that it it was. And, and so I, just, I have to remember sometimes I was reading scripture that 
I, I need to cut uh, ancient peoples a little slack. They, they did not have the same uh, medical or understanding that we do. Uh, but they may not have understood what the brain was, but they did know that the heart was in the chest of a person and that it sustained life. They weren't really sure how, but they knew that it was a part of that process. And so look at 1 Samuel 25, 37. Uh, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, this is a, just an interesting way to say it, right? He had a hangover. Uh, but when he was feeling better, his wife told him these things. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff that went into bag backstory. If you want to know, go to 1 Samuel 25 and, and read about it. But what his wife told him said his heart died within him and he became like stone. So Israel understood that the heart was a part of life. And if the heart didn't work, if the heart died, you died. And, and so we, we would go, uh, Nabal had a heart attack. But to them, they, they don't know what's going on. They just said his heart died within him. And so the Israelites in Moses' day believed that the, um, that the heart was where you did a whole bunch of things. And I'm just gonna go down this uh, list. Uh, ancient Israel believed that the heart was where you knew things. Um, so uh, understanding of, uh, about um, things. If I, I know the love I have for you, the Bible says, that they believe that came from the heart. Uh, the uh, the understanding, understanding things or being able to make connections between different things and, and bring it all together. They believe that happened in the heart. Uh, according to Proverbs, the heart is where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes out of the, the heart. Uh, Jeremiah said, that God's word gave him a heart of joy. And so joy came out of or spilled out of the, the heart. The heart they believed is where a person dis distinguished or discerned between truth and error. Uh, when Solomon was king, that's the kind of thing he talked about, that out of his heart, he had this great wisdom. They also believed that pain was felt in the heart. There's a story in 1 Samuel 1 about a woman named Hannah who was barren and she had gone to the temple. Samuel was the priest there and she was pouring out her heart to God. Um, and, and the text says that her mouth was moving but no words were coming out. And Samuel thought that she was drunk and he told her to leave. Uh, leave the tabernacle. And she says, no, I'm speaking out of the pain of my of my heart, that the heart was where uh, you thought, it was where you made sense of the physical world around you. It's, it's where your emotions came from and boiled out of. If you were, if you were angry at somebody, they, they believed that that kind of came out of the, the heart. Um, they believed it was where you made choices in your life that were motivated by your desires. And all of that happened within the heart. And so to the ancient Israelite people, the heart was the center of, of life. Everything kind of came from the heart. Everything a person would do, everything a person would think, uh, what they felt, it all came from the heart. And it's why Proverbs chapter four says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. 
It gives a little different meaning to this text when we understand that the Israelites believed every aspect of life, our emotions, our thoughts, the physical world around us, all of that comes from the heart. And so it's important for us to guard that and to be careful with that. After watching a generation of Israelites so turn away from God that they would voluntarily sacrifice their own children to idols as though it was a good thing, the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. And he wrote this, the heart is deceitful above all things and it's absolutely beyond cure. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah is looking around at the people doing these horrible, awful things. And, and he's going, the heart is the center of everything that we do. And so the heart must be broken. There's got to be something fundamentally wrong with our heart that we would do the things that we're doing because out of our heart, everything else comes. And so because of the brokenness that the people expressed, the biblical prophets believed that there needed to be a, a wiping away of the corruption that existed in the heart of the people so something new and better could take its place. Moses believed this so strongly that he said the hearts of the people needed to be circumcised. That's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, hold up. I don't think I like that. Moses under, understood that what needed to happen was that there needed to be a cutting away of the evilness and the stubbornness of the heart before it could be healed and something new could come. After King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up, he begged God to create in him a clean heart, renew this heart of mine that's been capable of so much evil and, 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 and disgusting things. The prophet Ezekiel, he hoped for a day when God would remove the people's heart of stone and give them a soft heart of flesh. And then the prophet Jeremiah wrote that God should write the 10 commands directly on the heart of his people. In the Shema, every day, the people are called to devote their whole heart to God, their whole body, their mind, their desires, their choices, their feelings, and their futures. And, and this is what it means to love, to ahava God with our whole heart. It means that everything that we do should come out of that. That our love for God should be so strong that it affects the way we think and the things that we, that we do that it should even help control our futures. The decisions that we make and the things that we're gonna do in our lives, that needs to come from a place where we're connected to God and we're saying, God, I have this opportunity. What would you have me do? How can I honor you in this next stage, in this next place? Now, today, of course, we uh, know that much of what was attributed in ancient Israel to the heart actually takes place in the mind. And that really is the whole purpose for why we've been talking for the last 40 minutes and going over these words so that we would understand that what, when Moses says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, we would actually hear what he's saying. 
And what he's saying is that we must love God with the same love with which he loves us. Love that's not just a feeling, but it's a function of our devotion to him as our only God. And that the love we have for him should control all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our actions. And so when we say Jesus the King died in our place and rose as our defender, inviting us into a relationship where we can live our real lives through the Holy Spirit's power as we daily surrender to Jesus' reign and wait for his return, what we're really saying is the same thing that Moses said in the Shema, that we would listen and obey our king, that we would love with action and we would surrender all of our thoughts, all of our feelings and actions to God, that we could somehow look a little more like Jesus every day. And so this week, consider what it means to love God, to have this ahava kind of love for God, a love that's not just love with words, what does it look like for you to love God in that way? Does it mean starting a Bible reading plan and making that a part of every day of your life, like getting up and doing stuff, reading a verse of the day or, or going through a plan or, or, or a reading project? Maybe, maybe it means you're gonna watch your language a little better. Maybe it means you're gonna be nicer to that person at work that just rubs you the wrong way. How do we love God? And, and how are we gonna do that with the center of our being? How are we gonna love God daily with our thoughts and actions and attitudes and emotions? And, and really key is, how are we gonna surrender them to Jesus so that we then look more like Jesus each day. That is our challenge every day. And, and so perhaps it would be a good idea for you to incorporate the Shema in your daily thoughts and prayers. What would it mean if you got up every morning understanding what the words of the Shema mean and you just prayed that prayer, God, you are God alone. Help me to listen and, and then to live like your son Jesus. And help me, God, today to love you, not just with the words of my mouth, but with the actions of my hands. Help me to love you with everything that I have, with my very soul, and with all of my might. How would that change the way we function in everyday life if we recognize those things. We started the day out with those affirmations about who God is and what we can do. And is there a way then to wrap up the day saying the same thing? God, as I'm getting in bed tonight, help me. Um, uh, hopefully today I've done this. Help me tomorrow to hear, to obey, to love with everything that I have so that I look a little bit more like your son, Jesus, every day. That's the goal, that's the challenge. That's what we're called to do in the Shema. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us um, even when oh, we are not lovely. 
even when we don't really understand what love is in the first place. We can go to you and, and we can go, oh, this is what love is. It's not just something we say, but it's something that we do. It's something that actually changes the way that we respond to people, the way that we think about people, the things that we do in our daily lives. And, and so Father, help us to listen and to obey because you are God alone. There is no other. And because of that, God, would you help us to love you with all that is in our heart, with our whole soul and with all of our might so that we might look a little bit more like your son, Jesus, every day. In his name, amen.